Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Philip Lancaster, Dr. Brian Lubers, and Dr. Bob Larson. Good morning, guys. Good morning, morning, Brad. Good morning, Brad. Happy to have you with us, and happy to have you with us listening as well. We always enjoy when you send us questions, and we're getting to that time of year as we get into fall and holidays, different things going on, but we're still going to be podcasting. So if you have questions you'd like us to answer or things you'd like us to address, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. That's also a great way to sign up. We send a weekly newsletter out that actually will start having some bonus content in it as well. So if you want to sign up for that newsletter, you can shoot us an email or you can go to the website and sign up. Today, we're going to talk a a little bit about record keeping. We're also going to talk about a, a good question relative to, okay, I'm weaning calves. Should I feed free choice hay or not? As well as some product handling and heart disease. Before we get into those topics, guys, I know that you've been out. It's that time of year. We're preg checking. We're weaning calves. A lot of hard work, but a lot of times with that hard work comes some great reward. And I remember one time uh, a long time ago and I was in Nebraska. We were working cattle and at lunch we'd stop and we would have a feast, right? We'd have a great meal. What's the best meal you've ever had while working cattle? Oh, that's a great, I've got some good ones because we, there's this one guy we worked for and uh, they, they did, they always made a feast out of the lunch meal. And, you know, we'd all have a big steak and about, it'd make these nice apple or peach pies and you, each person would get about a fourth of a pie. It was so great. The only Which makes it easy thing. to start working after lunch. Oh, that was the bad part. It's <laughs> like to, to go finish the other half of the cattle after lunch was terrible, but oh man, that lunch was good. My, my best one, I think, I was in grad school and we were working a set of heifers for project and one of the faculty had brought up some watermelon from Uvalde, Texas. And um, we sat down, it was, I don't know why, but that seemed like some of the best watermelon. I know after we got done, it was been cold in the cooler and stuff all day. And that was some of the best watermelon we'd had. I don't know if I have one. I think, you know, I, I like working beef cattle, but one of the advantages of being a dairy practitioner is I was on farm every two weeks and I had one client that would make breakfast every time I was out there after herd check. So every two weeks I had something and, and she was a fantastic cook. So um, I don't have one. I just have a lot of frequency. So I'm a, I'm a quantity guy. So you wanted it every two weeks. That's right. Every two weeks. Yeah. So it, it is, there's something about it and don't forget to take the time this fall as you're working cattle to enjoy some of those moments. And when you're there with family, friends, whoever you're working cattle with, hopefully by noon, everyone is still getting along and can go mm-hmm. sit down and eat and enjoy that enjoy that time. One of the other things that we do is we're working cattle in the fall. You guys have said so many times, keep records. Well, you should keep records. Well, you should write this down or you should save this. Today, I want to pin you down exactly how should I keep records? So not just what should I keep, we'll talk about that more in the future, but how would you keep records? Are you talking paper, computer? Is there a specific program you use? What would you guys recommend? I I really like getting the records into something that I can, into my computer that I can work on. So I would love like a phone app or something like that. And there's a few out there that work pretty well, but I'm also not gonna, not really gonna complain too much about collecting it on paper. Now, the problem with paper is in your, somebody's got to sit down and enter it into a computer if you're going to use it. But I would say a phone app, if you can find one that really works well for you, or paper's not that bad. 
says, I mean, the, I says the guy who really writes about yeah, it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I like paper. I'm, I'm the youngest one here, but I, and I still like paper too. I mean, for but like Bob's right. But I think you, you got to pick a system that you're going to be able to use. Um, you know, it, if you if you think having to have your phone or or even or a pad of paper is cumbersome with you all the time to keep things um, marked down, then it's not going to work for you. You got to pick one that that you feel comfortable with, and then make it work. Yeah, I, I agree. So, like the utility is a big component, but you also have to work backwards. And what do you want to know? <clears throat> and so, you know, if I'm really interested in my reproductive data, then I have to have an app or a spreadsheet or a piece of paper that I'm collecting the right pieces of data. So I, I guess I'm I'm kind of like Bob and, and Philip. I don't really care what the medium is as long as I'm getting the right information. So um, the apps are good, but I haven't seen one yet that will let me enter everything that I want for every operation. So you have to you have to kind of be a little bit picky and choosy about what you're trying to get out of the information. Well, and I'll take the the other stance there is is don't just try to write down everything. I'm with you, Brian. On you, you want to know what you what you want to know at the end of it, but don't feel, don't overwhelm myself. And I've worked with producers that the, the how of record keeping overwhelms whatever they might do with that information. So if you spend all your time writing it on a piece of paper, then going back and entered in a computer. You don't have very much time for making decisions based on that data. So whichever form works for you, whether it's paper, whether it's phone, whether it's a specific app, or just write it in the notes section of your of your phone, maybe maybe good for what you need to do. So we'll talk next week about how to analyze some of that data uh, once you get it into your whatever form you want it to be in. I wanted to I wanted to ask a question, and and, and Philip and Bob and Brian. I think this is a common scenario. So I'm gonna put a scenario out. We're weaning calves. I've got my calves weaned. I've got them in a dry lot pen. I wanna get them started on some feed. And my goal is I weaned them on farm. I'm gonna keep them 45 days, 60 days, and then I'm gonna sell them. I wanna get them started on feed, but I wanna be efficient as we go through this process. Should I, knowing that I've got, let's say I've got a good supplement ration that I'm feeding them, should I put in a free choice round bale or should I try to have some other method of feeding hay and what are the pros and cons? Well, first I'm, I'm gonna separate your question a little bit there, Brad. If, if starting them on feed is different than feeding them through the whole period. Um, if to, to start them on feed, I wanna give them something that is they're familiar with. So probably long stem hay to get them eating. And then in the, the grain portion of, of, the, of the ration, I want some very um, palatable and familiar feeds. So good ones are like distillers grains, dried distillers grains are, are very palatable. But then when we go to, to feed them, to me, there's, there's, I'll say there's what is the ideal, and then there's kind of what not to do and then you have to try to get somewhere in the middle if you don't have the right equipment and we can we can talk about that but the ideal would be to have a, a totally mixed ration that you put in the bunk every day so that every calf is eating the the right amount of all the nutrients every day that would be the ideal but that's a that's hardly 
for many operations, that's hardly feasible, right? I don't have a mixer wagon. I don't have a hay grinder. I don't have that equipment. And I'm going to say it is super convenient just to put a free choice bale out there. So let's say I've got them started on feed, but I would like to carry some buckets and put it in the bunk, or I've got a little feeder and I can put the feed in the, in the bunk, or maybe even just put a big feeder out there with some limiter in it and feed them free choice hay. To me, that that's the worst situation because- So Brad you, wants to do it the worst way. The worst way. <laughs> yeah, because, because you're not monitoring intake of any of the animals in that situation. You, you'll have some animals that spend way too much time at the feeder, and you have some animals that will spend way too much time at the hay ring. On average, the group is eating the right proportion but individuals within the group are e eating incorrect proportions. And what will happen over time, you may not notice it in 45 or 60 days, but, but over time, you're going to increase the range of weights of the animals in your group. So what I'm hearing you say is, is the ideal thing is, you know, a total mixed ration with some ground hay and the concentrate all together. And that, and we certainly, there's producers that have the equipment, the ability to do that, but there's a lot of people that don't have that equipment, don't really want to invest in that type of equipment. So then maybe the second best way is a free choice hay, you know, so hay out in a hay ring, something like that, that they can get at any time they want, but then kind of limit, limit feed or hand feed the concentrate portion. But, and what I'm hearing you say, because you said something like monitoring intake and things like that. So I want to be able to watch and see that all the cattle get to the bunk. So I have to have enough bunk space. Uh, still probably needs to be a palatable feed, but just basically put out the hand feeding the, the concentrate part once or twice a day and then let the free choice hay go. That's kind of my second best way. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, that that, that way... You know, first of all, make sure you get enough bunk space for every animal to eat at the same time when you're doing that. But that way you can monitor that everybody is getting the right amount or, or close, close we to can the do yeah. uh, um, of the concentrate portion. And then they'll they'll fill up on the hay. Um, and you can see if some animal gets um, bullied out of the feed bunk um, and, and is not getting their share or, or things like that. There's, there's still going to be some variation because animals eat at different rates. And so some animals will consume more than their share and some consume less, but, but it won't be as drastic as a self-feeder. So Philip, if you, if you start to see that variation within a group, it starts to get extreme. And, and I don't mean just one or two individuals, but if you start to see, <clears throat> it looks like your group is starting to develop some spread in the weights, which is probably way too late as opposed to monitoring actually intake on an individual basis or, or semi-monitoring. What do you do about that? Well, the, so I guess you get, a, you know, a couple different choices, depending on how big your group is, you could divide them and sell them as um, two different groups. Um, that way each group in itself is more uniform. Um, if, you know, if your group is small and if you're going to keep them long enough, you could, and you could divide them, and you, that way you could you could cut back a little bit on the other on the heavier animals, and you could um, give a little bit more grain and stuff to the lighter animals so that they could catch up over time. If you really wanted to have a, a uniform group um, to take to the sale barn, 
or or I like the idea of dividing them into two groups and I and I might say I might divide them into two groups and feed the bigger ones more and feed the smaller ones more right but they each have access to it and they keep growing so it doesn't make a uniform group at sale but it optimizes my efficiency within both those groups feeding them to their levels so great conversation here and it sounds like there's a trade-off right so if I want to do free choice hay good labor savings but I may not be optimizing the situation and there are some in-between areas right so there are some ways to li limit feed hay if I have access to square bales or I've got a I've got a mechanism to feed a certain amount of hay to a group of calves but that comes with some equipment purchases. So there's some trade-offs and I'd say, just think through what makes sense for your operation. I wanted to move and I, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about how we handle products. So we talked about processing, we talked about preg check, we talked about do, processing calves. And Brian, I know you've, you've looked into this quite a bit as we think about it and I'll, I'll give you a scenario, right? I'm going out to work cows today and it's a nice fall day in the Midwest. So the temperature will be anywhere between 20 and 85. <laughs> so how do I plan and how do I manage my products in that scenario to make sure that they still have good efficacy? Yeah, so I think, I mean, you've you hit on probably one of the, the big things we worry about with um, handling, especially when you talk about vaccine products, although we, we could talk a lot of these principles apply to, to other drug products as well, but we'll, let's kind of limit to vaccines and, and temperature is a big one, right? And so um, the, the overall message should be handle the vaccines according to the directions on the label. So we want to make sure we're, we're controlling the temperature. And so you mentioned, um, you know, it could be anywhere from 20 to 85 and, and maybe even a little more extreme than that in some parts of our listening area. So um, the, the, the easiest way to do that is to have a cooler, right? And so coolers don't just keep things cold when it's hot. They also help keep things warm warmer if it's really, really cold. And so, and you can do things like, you know, you can have cold packs or ice packs in there. If it's a warmer day, um, you can put the little hand warmer packs in there if it's a colder day and you're trying to maintain a little bit warmer temperature. So, I mean, the, the cooler is essentially insulating that product from the environment. Um, the other the other big thing that we think about when when handling vaccines um, is we, do, we do, don't want to contaminate those bottles. And so, um, and when we talk about contamination, we're talking like bacterial or fungal contamination. So um, just a mean, couple- What do you mean contaminate, Brian? I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. So if there's, um, you know, if there's stuff on the, the vaccine bottle lid, um, or if our needle gets dirty, uh, we can actually drag bacteria into that bottle and, and have substances in the vaccine that we don't want in there. And, uh, you know, those that can re, that can result in uh, having more vaccine site reactions. Um, you can get abscesses and things like that. So we're we're trying to minimize that. And so two two things. One is we want to make sure that when we're going into a vaccine bottle, we have a clean needle. And so the easiest recommendation is just to have a needle that's dedicated just to that bottle. So we, we puncture the lid of the vaccine vial one time with that needle, uh, we draw up into our syringe, and then we leave that needle there. Um, and then we put a new needle on our syringe. So we're not 
dragging, we're not injecting animals with one needle and then putting it back into the vaccine bottle multiple times. Because every time we go into that bottle, um, it increases our chance of contaminating it. And then the second thing is, what do we do with those bottles when we're done with them? And, and so that's uh, kind of a thing we need to think about ahead of time. Um, when we're getting towards the end of a group, you know, if we've got five animals left, um, it's optimal not to start a 50 dose multi-dose vial at that point, right? Because now we've got 45 doses sitting in a bottle. And if we're done for the season, um, we probably are going to end up throwing that bottle away because we've opened it. Um, there is a shelf life once you've opened a bottle of vaccine. And so just kind of some pre-planning on on what we have left at, at the end of the day or the end of the season is really the big deal. So I think you're absolutely right. Maintaining the temperatures. And then you're also talking about handling. So when you talk about contaminating those vials, making sure that if I've had, if I've got a needle and it's been into an animal, it's not going back into the vial. So we'll put some of those tips and also the BQA beef quality assurance guidelines have a lot of those things really well spelled out. So one of the other things that we wanted to do today is get a chance to get an update on research. And for that, we're going to talk to Dr. Blaine Johnson. Welcome to our BCI Research Roundup for this week. And we've got Dr. Blaine Johnson with us who's working on his PhD. He has a master's in nutrition and his doctor of veterinary medicine spent some time in practice, but came back and he's been doing quite a bit of work on heart disease. Welcome, Blaine. Hi, thanks for having me. I wanted to ask you some of the some of the things that we've talked about with heart disease, and we haven't talked about it much on this podcast, but I know in the industry, it's kind of a big issue. So tell us some of the stuff that you've been doing and what have you found out from your research? Yeah, so this stemming from the industry, it kind of came up along the lines of um, people finding uh, heart disease at lower elevations originally, and then the blame going on to cattle that were dying later in the feeding phase. Um, so, and these are cattle that cost lots of, lots of money. Once they get later in the feeding phase, you've already invested a lot of time and feed into these animals. And we're finding a few that die of heart disease. So um, the question was approached of how can we one better define heart disease in the feedlot industry? And then two, what's really, what's our data showing us out in the, um, cattle world. So my research looked at feedlot operational data from 22 um, commercial feedlots throughout the feeding belt here in the U.S. And um, initially what we found is heart disease uh, is called many different diseases in the operational data. So our first uh, hurdle we had overcome is uh, what diseases classify as what we would um, classically see a heart disease case from a veterinarian's perspective and uh, figure out which of those diseases fit the model and put them in and then figure out uh, what the data is telling us. We figured out those diseases and we looked across the feedlot data and we came out with um, what uh, heart disease is at a cohort level. And then we also looked at the timing of heart disease and feedlot cattle from the operational data side of things. So when you say heart, and, and I'm gonna go back to, when you say heart disease, Tell me what that looks like clinically in an animal that is suffering from heart disease. Yeah, so classically, uh, heart disease was originally found in high elevations of animals, and they called it brisket disease. So these animals would show up having these very swollen briskets, and it'd go all the way up to their jaw. And what it is is edema that's going in the subcutaneous tissues from a heart that's failing the system 
causing a backlog of pressure, uh, which uh, in pushes fluids out into the body that causes edema. And uh, eventually the animals will succumb to heart disease once it gets to that stage, because that's end stage heart disease. And there's not a lot you can do for the animal at that point. And the heart fails the animal and the animal succumbs to disease. So how frequently does this occur based on your data? From our data, what we found that heart disease has been occurring at the feedlots that we looked at about seven and 10,000 head of cattle received. So relatively rare, but one of the things that I've heard is, and you mentioned this, and I'd be interested to see what your data says, that heart disease often occurs late in the feeding phase. It's in our cattle that were heavy and maybe more common in the summer. Is that what your data shows? That is actually not what our data shows. Our data, um, we put everything into a general linear model, so it adjusts for a lot of different factors. And what we found is heart disease uh, is happening um, from a feeding days on feed standpoint throughout the feeding period. It can happen from day zero, first day on feed, all the way out to 300 to 400 days on feed. Um, and it doesn't seem like there's a seasonality that goes along with it. Um, and uh, so we can't say that it's normally a summer disease or early fall disease, which has been kind of classic what people complain that they're seeing a lot of these animals uh, die of uh, because of heat or whatnot. And uh, what, so from our data, we might be misidentifying some animals that we're calling heart disease that really aren't heart disease from a necropsy viewpoint. So Blaine, you've got a disease that's fairly rare um, and there doesn't seem to be an associated timing factor or anything like that. Um, have you guys looked into any other causes? You know, I don't, I don't know if you've explored genetics or nutrition or anything like that. Do you guys have any idea of what else could be contributing to the development of heart disease in cattle? Yeah, and uh, so we're trying to build up our approach of how we're going to tackle this issue. And first, we wanted to figure out what baseline prevalence was in our commercial cattle feeding operational data that we had. And then from there, from operational data, we we're unfortunately unable to answer a genetic component of that uh, question, which could lead down to future research. And I know there's other groups out there that are trying to help or answer that question by looking at different genetic components of the uh, cattle's genome. And currently no one has a pinpoint answer to that question. So it's still on the table, but no one has a very good answer if genetics play a major component of uh, heart disease that we see in the feedlot industry. I know when you uh, talk about brisket disease or high elevation disease, there is a heavier genetic component, especially when you look at uh, PAP scores or pulmonary arterial pressure scores that Colorado has done a lot of research with. Um, uh, other issues such as nutrition or anything that we have not been able to look at specifically. Um, there's a few things that can cause heart issues from um, toxicology standpoints, such as menensin toxicology or uh, some plants, but as from a feedlot perspective, that's that hasn't been sorted out. For, well, it's not a huge issue from plant standpoint in the feedlot since it's all um, rations that we make up. And Menensin's pretty well controlled. So it hasn't been fully explored from that model. And from any other standpoint, we haven't really been able to find any data pushing us in one direction. 
Excellent. Thanks, Blaine. So, so one of the things that I think that is interesting from your research, you found that relatively rare occurrence, but when it occurs, it's a big problem because often that disease is fatal. There's no treatment. You talked about some of the clinical signs. And then also, I think what's really interesting about your research is you looked at research over a span of time, and you can account for some of those other potential risk factors and it doesn't just happen in the late day, it happens throughout the feeding phase. So we look forward to more updates on your research and learning more about how you progress with heart disease. Thanks, Blaine. Thank you, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today and appreciate that information from Blaine. Wanted to let you guys know is if you have questions, comments, any feedback you'd like to give us, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.